On June 15, 1906, a custom-made Pope Toledo car raced through the curving roads of Death Valley, California. Its driver gunned the gleaming automobile at top speed, carrying two men forward into the desert. As the sun set and the stars shone brightly in the night sky above, the driver and his passenger marveled at the natural beauty surrounding them. But only for a brief moment. They had a destination to reach, and the rights to a newly discovered gold mine were at stake. A prospector from Emigrant Springs was selling the rights to the first person to arrive at the site. According to reports, a slew of developers were already en route. In the Pope Toledo, the men overcame each hurdle that threatened to derail their journey. Sand dunes, precarious swamps and bogs, even a flat tire. But finally, as the sun began to rise, they spotted their destination on the horizon. In Emigrant Springs, the passengers emerged from the car weary but unbeaten. They hiked for several hours until they finally reached the promised site. There, according to a detailed account of the journey, just at sunup, they were standing upon a monstrous outcropping of gold-bearing quartz. However, the writer of this article, George Graham Rice, wasn't in the car. In fact, if readers were to look closer, they would be hard-pressed to find any evidence of the journey at all. The entire account, the car, the two men, the gold-bearing quartz, was a mirage. It probably never even happened. But it was clear that George Rice knew something vital about people. The best way to snag their attention, and eventually their money, was to present a compelling narrative. And if there was one thing Rice could do, it was tell a good story. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we met con artist and habitual gambler George Graham Rice. Born Jacob Herzig, Rice's childhood obsession with the criminal underworld led him to forge a new identity for himself and become a master scammer in his own right. This week, we'll follow Rice as he takes his cons out west and makes a fortune by exaggerating the prospects of mines. 
we'll also learn how his lies finally caught up to him, forcing him underground, evading capture for the rest of his days. In September of 1904, 34-year-old George Graham Rice took a train heading out to the American West. His wildly successful horse betting business, Maximum Gay, had been shut down by the authorities in New York. And after a slew of gambling losses, Rice was left with only a couple hundred dollars to his name. In the past two decades, Rice had developed a knack for winning millions through bets and schemes, then losing it all again almost immediately. But this time, he was ready to walk away from it all. He'd had enough of the ups and downs. In his autobiography, Rice wrote about his desire to conquer his addiction to gambling. He said of this time, I traveled to a ranch within 50 miles of San Francisco, where I hoed potatoes and did other manual labor designed to cure racetrackitis. In less than six weeks, I felt myself a new man and decided to stick to the simple life forevermore, away from racetracks and other forms of gambling. But Rice's earnest pursuit for an honest life didn't last long. Soon, he found the West had far more lucrative things to offer than farming. More specifically, gold. America's West Coast was the new frontier. In 1904, it was still underdeveloped. The small towns were centered around one industry. In most cases, this was mining. By the early 1900s, the California gold rush had long since died down. But the West Coast was still peppered with mining settlements that clung to the era's optimism and buoyant spirit. Goldfield, Nevada was much the same. After spending some time in San Francisco, Rice found himself stranded in Goldfield. It was a desolate area, hard to get to, with a rugged terrain and extreme temperatures. But for those who could see its worth, it was a gold mine. Or rather, a silver mine. By the time Rice arrived in 1904, Goldfield's mines still produced silver, but few outside the area understood the town's value. Not long after Rice rode into town, he quickly ran out of money. To make ends meet, he took a writing job at the Goldfield News, thinking his flamboyant style would be an asset in a place on the edge of nowhere. For one week, he wrote embellished articles that sounded more like fiction than fact, until he was fired for his creative liberties. But during his brief reporting career, Rice saw how much potential Goldfield had. Even though its mines were producing a sizable amount of silver, few people were interested or invested. The whole town was ripe for profit. Mining stocks at the time were dirt cheap, meaning that they could easily yield high returns for little investment. And if Rice got in on the ground floor, he could make huge profits just by inflating costs. All he needed to do was drum up 
some publicity. All his life, Rice demonstrated an uncanny ability to find new opportunities and exploit them to his advantage. But his talents shone especially bright in difficult, high-stakes situations. In fact, he seemed to thrive in the face of a challenge. In the 1970s and 80s, a study conducted by the University of Chicago investigated this very phenomenon. Over a span of 12 years, researchers examined how people reacted to difficult circumstances. This included work stress, a new move, or financial pressure. All factors Rice encountered in Goldfield. The study found that two-thirds of their subjects responded poorly to stress. They often suffered a cognitive decline and even physical symptoms such as increased illness and a higher risk of heart attacks or strokes. But one-third actually thrived. These subjects had three traits in common – commitment, control, and challenge. And over the course of George Graham Rice's life, he'd come to demonstrate all of them in many ways. First, Rice exhibited challenge early in his life by overcoming two initial prison sentences, after which he emerged undeterred and returned to a life of crime. Second, and perhaps most importantly, Rice demonstrated both control and commitment in his conwork. In the case of Goldfield, Rice knew the riches that lay in store in the town's mountains. And to obtain them, he was dedicated to putting in the work and enacting a plan. Rice realized that Goldfield's lack of publicity, combined with the layman's ignorance of mining, could be used to his advantage. If he embellished the facts, perhaps the average person wouldn't know the difference between a good investment opportunity and a total scam. And by the time they realized they'd been conned, Rice could be long gone, off to the next town. Just like he had back east, Rice opened another sham company. He named his new venture the Goldfield Tonopah Advertising Agency, with the intention of providing publicity services to the people of Goldfield. He started with just a desk and employed a single stenographer, but he approached the role with the confidence of someone leading a huge company. The first client Rice pitched to was the Mims Sutro Company, a securities brokerage charged with selling mining stocks. When Rice met with Mim Sutro, the company was spending $100 a month on advertising. But in their first meeting, after explaining the importance of consistent publicity, Rice convinced them to spend $1,000 in one day. After all, he insisted it was the best way to ensure that customers would keep coming back. And he was right. Soon, Mim Sutro was turning a significant profit, and in the meantime, Rice sat back and watched. But as he observed the brokerage's success, Rice decided he wanted part of the action. He wanted to get into the stock market. 
As Rice watched the small town exchanges, he realized that there was little difference between the stock markets in the West and the gambling halls on the East Coast. In both, people were looking to make a lot of money for little initial investment. And for each, the barrier to entry was low. At the time, mine stocks in and around Goldfield were being sold for pennies. It was an opportunity for those with lower incomes to get in on the action. Rice realized his client base could include practically anyone with a penny to spare. And a wider net just meant more cash to collect. With that epiphany, Rice made his first play. Using the profits from his advertising agency, he bought a newspaper outlet. Then he used the paper to drum up publicity for Goldfield's cheap stocks in cities with larger populations. It was a success. By early 1905, the 34-year-old was turning a profit of $65,000 in his agency, close to $2 million today. And the silver stocks previously being sold for pennies were now going for two, three, and even five dollars per share. With the new influx of money, Goldfield, Nevada expanded by the day. The population grew to 20,000 people in less than a year. And all the newcomers were eager to buy their piece of the town's mining industry. By 1905, Rice became the go-to person when new mines in the area were opened. As soon as gold was discovered, people rushed in to claim the property so they could turn around and sell it at a higher price. Then they hired Rice to inflate the cost of the stocks before they even went on the market, guaranteeing a higher profit for the mine's owner. This was one of the first steps in a common type of securities fraud known as a pump-and-dump scheme. Rice first bought up shares of worthless stock and promoted them to unsuspecting customers through misleading advertising. Then, when the value of the shares had skyrocketed, Rice sold all his remaining shares immediately, raking in the profit and leaving his marks with a useless investment. But with this influx of new money came a familiar itch for old habits. Barely two years after arriving in Goldfield, Rice resumed gambling. After one particularly vicious losing streak, the con man lost thousands of dollars in the span of a couple of days. Humiliated and desperate for new cash flow, Rice traveled up north. He was interested in the latest mine discovery in a small town with a familiar name, Manhattan, Nevada. Once there, Rice bought shares of the new mine and immediately returned to Goldfield to promote them. When he told eager listeners the story of what he found in Manhattan, Rice made sure to embellish the details of his journey. How he set up camp in the canyon and slept on the snow-covered ground and how, when he woke up in the morning, he saw flecks of gold in the ore of the mountains. Of course, there was no gold. Still, within days of spreading his tail around town, Rice turned a $20,000 profit, 
more than $500,000 today. And soon, he wasn't doing it alone. Noticing Rice's full pockets, Lawrence Sullivan, the owner of a popular pub in Goldfield, expressed an interest to get in on the action. Together, they started the L. M. Sullivan Trust Company to promote Manhattan and to serve as stockbrokers for its fraudulent investment opportunities. But it wasn't long before people began catching on to the fact that the mine was worthless. And eventually, the local stock exchange refused to validify the mines. But this was a small matter to Rice and Sullivan. The con men had set their sights on a much bigger prize, the San Francisco Stock Exchange. Soon, they would lay all their money out on the table of the more sophisticated market. But before their gamble could pay off, tragedy struck at the most inopportune moment. Coming up, the San Francisco earthquake leads to financial devastation, and George Graham Rice encounters trouble from a newcomer in town. Now, back to the story. In the span of two short years, 35-year-old George Graham Rice transformed himself from a failed New York bookie to a wealthy stockbroker in the great American West. He'd made thousands through pump-and-dump schemes dealing in mining stocks, becoming an integral member of the Goldfield, Nevada community. Fate seemed to be smiling upon George Rice. But his luck was about to run out. On April 18, 1906, Rice was shaken to his core. A devastating earthquake ripped through San Francisco, damaging 80% of the city. But the con man wasn't concerned about the people affected. He was worried about his money. In addition to building damage, the quake destroyed countless financial records and shut down the San Francisco Stock Exchange for two entire months. This spelled trouble for the fledgling L. M. Sullivan Trust Company, the enterprise Rice had started with his new partner, Lawrence Sullivan. The business was growing rapidly, but there was just one problem. The company's profits were only recorded in the form of bank statements, not tangible bills. In the wake of the earthquake, they had nothing. As businesses shut down all over the West Coast, L. M. Sullivan Trust struggled to stay afloat. But luckily, George Graham Rice had dealt with tight times before. Instead of pinching pennies, Rice decided that saving the company required taking bigger swings than he'd ever made before. According to researchers Norris Kruger Jr. and Peter R. Dixon, risk-taking behavior in business is greatly dependent on the confidence of a company's leaders. In their 1994 study, Kruger and Dixon found that executives who had a history of successful decision-making and perceived themselves as highly competent saw more opportunity in risk. 
whereas those with less confidence were prone to see more potential threats and less likely to enact change in high-pressure situations. Interestingly, an individual's actual skill or resources seem to have little impact on this behavior. Whether justified or not, risk-taking is all about self-confidence. And George Graham Rice had it in spades. So in order to save L.M. Sullivan and his money, he decided to do what he did best – pull off some of the biggest publicity stunts the West had ever seen. In June of 1906, he purchased a luxury, custom-made Pope Toledo car and staged an elaborate 250-mile drive through Death Valley to promote L.M. Sullivan's newest mines in Emigrant Springs, California. Because documentation of the drive is almost impossible to find, other than the articles that Rice wrote himself, many doubt the con man even took that famous ride. Regardless of whether it actually happened, the stories he wove were an immediate sensation, making the rounds in newspapers across the West. But the drive to Emigrant Springs wasn't Rice's last publicity stunt. Nearly three months later, in September of 1906, he also organized a match between two of the world's most renowned lightweight boxers, Joe Gans and Oscar Nelson. Gans was the first black boxing champion in the United States, and the public was eager to see him go up against the popular Oscar Nelson. The fight drew thousands of people to Goldfield, Nevada, more than the small town had ever seen before. And after 42 rounds, the longest match in modern boxing history, Gans finally won to the delight of the spectators. It was a fight for the ages. But of course, the match itself wasn't the only reason Rice had organized the event. He'd only attracted the crowds to Goldfield to entice them into purchasing stocks from the L.M. Sullivan Company. But not far from Goldfield, Nevada, Senator George S. Nixon was working with mining professionals to find a way to collapse the mining market out from under rice. They wanted to get the con man out of the way so they could merge the top producing mines of the area into one big profitable company. But they also had an ulterior motive for knocking rice off his pedestal. Rice supported the Democratic governor John Sparks and financially backed his campaign in exchange for Sparks' support of the Sullivan Trust Company. The governor's seal of approval gave the business credibility at a time when many people were becoming more wary of being scammed. Rice dealt with this new complication alone. His partner, Larry Sullivan, was on a drinking bender leaving Rice to handle the increasing pressures of the business by himself. Then, when Rice was at his most vulnerable, fate threw him yet another curveball in the form of John Grant Lyman, a fellow con artist. 
In the second half of 1906, Goldfield was already a prospering settlement when 42-year-old Lyman decided to make it his next mark. He wasn't aware that another scammer had already claimed the town for himself, nor did he realize that it was a man he'd previously met. Lyman and Rice first encountered each other years before on a betting lawn in Saratoga. They shared tricks of the trade, and Rice threw caution to the wind as he bragged to Lyman about his many successful cons. And so, when Lyman realized his old acquaintance had already planted his flag on Goldfield, he came up with a different scheme. Blackmail. Lyman knew almost every detail of Rice's sordid past, and Rice knew that Lyman could expose him, ruining his reputation and all the hard work he'd put into Goldfield over the years. He was putty in his hands. Lyman used his newfound power to pressure Rice into promoting a nearby mine that they both knew to be worthless. Lyman figured correctly that with the governor's endorsement of the Sullivan Trust Company, any land that Rice chose to endorse would end up making his early investors extremely rich men. This put Rice between a rock and a hard place. If he followed through, it would put Governor Sparks' re-election campaign in jeopardy. But if he didn't, then Lyman would destroy everything Rice had built. Rice was devastated, and not just because of the potential loss of income. He'd grown attached to Goldfield, and he wasn't ready to say goodbye. But before Rice could make a decision either way, one of his employees sent word that Lyman had already run an ad for the mine. He'd used the Sullivan Trust name without Rice's permission. Rice was livid. He tracked Lyman down, but this time he wouldn't be using his silver tongue to win the confrontation. This conflict could only be settled with fists. A scuffle ensued in the Sullivan Trust office, and Rice channeled all his anger into physical blows. Limbs were flying as each man struck the other again and again, hell-bent on making his opponent bleed. Then, as Lyman tried to escape, he crashed into Rice's glass office door, falling through as it shattered into thousands of crystalline pieces. Before Rice could make another move, Lyman scrambled to his feet and scampered away, covered in shards of glass. Lyman fled Goldfield that day, his clothes still drenched in blood. But before he disappeared, he made sure to tell the local newspapers all about George Graham Rice's past, his birth name, his two stints in prison, and most importantly, about his failed racetrack scam in New York. Everything Rice built came tumbling down. He tried to staunch the exodus of customers from the L.M. Sullivan Company, but it was no use. The town was already wise to his schemes, and the people of Goldfield were furious. 
Rice's sterling reputation was officially ruined. On January 5th, 1907, Rice was forced to shutter L.M. Sullivan, and the 36-year-old returned to New York with no more money than when he'd left. However, he did come back with one thing he hadn't had before, stock experience. Rice's time working in stocks gave him access to a new network in Manhattan, the brokers and salesmen of Wall Street. When he first returned to the city, he was ashamed to admit that he'd blown close to $3 million on the Sullivan Trust Venture, close to $88 million in today's dollars. But he was even more surprised to learn that the financiers couldn't care less. In their eyes, $3 million was pocket change. And so they welcomed Rice among their ranks with open arms. Under their guidance, Rice became acquainted with a whole new way of doing business, learning how to manipulate the stock market itself. After two years of tutelage, 38-year-old Rice started his New York stock brokerage business in earnest. Now, with a new company and a new venture, the stage was set for Rice to pull off his biggest con yet. On January 18, 1909, Rice set up the B.H. Sheftels & Company with the help of Chicago broker Bernard Sheftels. The con man began by following the same business model that he had pioneered out west with the Sullivan Trust Company. First, he promoted mining stocks from Nevada, many of which were dubious or worthless at best. Armed with the lessons he'd learned from his previous endeavors, Rice and Sullivan now had a whole new way to exploit people. Each time when papers promoting the mine went out, Rice told the public to take advantage of an unusually attractive speculative opening. Shameless and brazen tactics like these were what earned Rice his new nickname, the Jackal of Wall Street. By the summer of 1909, just over six months later, the 39-year-old was helping to bring in a million dollars a month in stock sales. The business grew to 200 employees and Rice was once again living large. He had a Central Park West apartment that he rented for the rotation of mistresses he showed off around town. But though Rice's future never looked brighter, his past was once again catching up with him. As the list of people Rice had conned all across the country grew longer, his chances of being uncovered loomed larger. And it wouldn't be long before the ire of the federal government would rain down in full force on Rice and his cronies. Coming up, Rice's business comes under fire and he finally faces justice for his many crimes. Now back to the story. In 1909, 39-year-old George Graham Rice was on top of the world. Not only had the con man recovered from the crumbling of his fraudulent empire in Goldfield, Nevada, he successfully rebranded himself as a top Wall Street broker, dubbed the Jackal of Wall Street. But cracks were beginning 
to appear in the facade. In September of 1909, an article in the Engineering and Mining Journal did an expose on one of Rice's mines and his past. The tell-all piece detailed everything from Goldfield to his first stint in Elmira Reformatory. Rice panicked. Overnight, his stocks plummeted and might have crumbled altogether if he hadn't bought up the shares himself. Spurred by the article, the police showed up on Rice's doorstep to his great alarm. They didn't have any warrants. Instead, they told the con man that they simply came to ask some questions. But Rice wasn't the only one being interrogated by the authorities. Subscribers came back to him with additional stories. Postal inspectors were contacting them to ask if they felt like they were being scammed by the brokerage. His company, B.H. Scheftels, was being attacked at every angle. Rice, once again, leaned on his publicity skills in an attempt to correct the situation. He wrote articles in retaliation, spinning all the negative attention to make it seem like B.H. Scheftels was the victim of a conspiracy by Wall Street insiders. Then he sued the Engineering and Mining Journal for $750,000 for libel. Even in the wake of all this negative press, Rice somehow continued to attract customers. Perhaps it was as the saying goes, there's no such thing as bad publicity. But more likely, this was the effect of a concept known as the sunk cost fallacy. According to Carnegie Mellon, Associate Professor Christopher Olivola, the sunk cost fallacy is a type of human behavior that influences people's decision-making abilities. Even when the results may be unfavorable, the average individual has a tendency to continue something they've invested a great deal of time, money, or energy into. This is a form of misguided loss aversion. In the case of Rice's customers, many stayed or even doubled down on their investments out of fear. They believed that if they gave up on the venture at the first sign of trouble, they would never see a penny of their returns. But if they held out just a little longer, there was a chance their luck would change. So, with the help of his client's persistence and his own quick thinking, Rice was able to course-correct B.H. Scheftel's ship. But ultimately, it wasn't enough to save them from the giant iceberg looming ahead. In June of 1910, the federal government caught on to Rice's corruption. Rumors of a federal raid reached the B.H. Scheftel's executives, and Rice was thrown. They were accustomed to covering their tracks. They even kept three sets of accounting books to hide their real profits. But a federal investigation was likely to dig deeper. Rice visited Washington to see what other news he could sniff out. He got in touch with all his contacts, but no one could corroborate the raid reports. In fact, people were amused that he had gone to all the trouble. From their perspective, 
Rice was an important, wealthy businessman who was running scared from a stray rumor. It was enough to make them wonder why his reaction was so extreme. But soon enough, they discover why. In August of 1910, banks started to refuse B. H. Scheftel's checks. All of a sudden, Rice was forced to deal with angry crowds of customers on the daily. So on September 29, 1910, Rice wasn't surprised to see the B. H. Scheftel's office lounge full of people. After weeks of fielding furious clients, he'd gotten used to the sight. But had he looked closer, he might have noticed that 15 of these so-called customers were wearing heavy coats despite the warm weather. The undercover cops pretended to watch the stock brokerage in action, following along as prices of shares changed and customers reacted, biding their time. At 12 o'clock sharp, Rice stepped outside to smoke a cigar. As he surveyed the area, he noticed a police wagon pulling up to the curb in front of his building. But before he could process the significance, a shout from inside the office grabbed his attention. All the undercover cops had drawn their guns from within their trench coats and were staging a raid. Their objective, to find George Graham Rice. Rice was public enemy number one as far as the cops were concerned. But in the commotion, they confused one of the couriers for the mastermind behind the whole operation. As the man pleaded his innocence, Rice made his escape. As more police officers swarmed, Rice walked calmly through the length of the building, careful not to draw any attention to himself, and exited through the back door. From there, he made his way to his mistress's apartment on Central Park West and plotted his next move. But Rice realized he couldn't keep slipping out back doors. Soon enough, the feds would find him. So he decided to beat them to the punch. He immediately hired a team of six attorneys and turned himself into the authorities the next day. Rice had a contingency plan. He believed that his best chance of avoiding a conviction was to delay the trial or to get acquitted on the charges. So the con man got to work. For the next year, Rice kept a low profile and plotted his defense. Then, on October 9th, 1911, the trial finally commenced. Rice did everything in his power to draw out the proceedings and to sway the jury in his favor. His defense called witnesses who spent hours on the stand detailing the mundane details of B. H. Scheftel's business. And with every statement made by the prosecution, no matter how insignificant, Rice's lawyers launched into a heated argument in defense of Rice and his cronies. But eventually, Rice's underhanded tactics did him in. When he attempted to bribe one of the jurors, he was found out and reported. Ultimately, he lost his bail and was sent to Tombs Prison, the same prison where he spent his very first prison sentence as a young man. 
Almost 20 years had passed since Rice had first entered Tombs. In that time, he'd made a name for himself, started multiple businesses and scams, and made millions of dollars in the process. He'd lost all of it. But as he was escorted into his new cell, Rice felt a bitter sort of irony. After all those years, here he was, back where he began. But his fight wasn't over yet. Rice knew that his stall tactics would antagonize the jury and risk him an even more severe sentence. But he forged on. With each passing day, the federal government grew more impatient. His last hope was that they would give up and make a deal. But it was all for naught. After five months of proceedings, 41-year-old Rice pleaded guilty on March 7, 1912. In exchange, he was sent to jail for a year. But his time in prison wasn't wasted. Rice used that year to write an autobiography of his life and schemes, and gave it a title that was as irreverent as Rice himself. My Adventures with Your Money. In the book, Rice detailed the many cons he'd run in his lifetime, and even went as far as to teach the average reader how to replicate his successful swindles. The book didn't sell exceptionally well, but it ensured a sort of legacy for Rice as a forefather for the modern con artist. But Rice's adventures weren't over. Though his prison sentence could have spelled the end of his career in crime, after a lifetime of borrowed luxury and criminal habits, he was too entrenched to give up now. More importantly, he didn't want to. Living on the edge of a borrowed dime proved more interesting to Rice than a regular job, and he was especially good at evading trouble. For all his crimes, a year in jail was next to nothing. After his release, Rice jumped right back into the action. He continued running sketchy brokerage businesses on Wall Street for another 15 years until he was arrested once again in 1928 at age 58. Once again, he employed the same stalling tactics at trial, but they were less effective this time around. He was sentenced to four years and a $5,000 fine. When he was released once again, Rice found the world had changed. The Great Depression led to new laws governing the financial world. Stocks could no longer be traded based on insider information, which, unfortunately for Rice, was the linchpin of his entire operation. Nevertheless, he found new cons and new people to swindle, and the authorities once again caught on to him. But this time, as they prepared for an arrest in December of 1938, they arrived too late. Rice had disappeared from his apartment. He remained underground until his death in 1943 at age 
1873. Over the course of his life, Rice stole millions of dollars, lost it all gambling, and then got it all back again. An estimated $500 million over the course of 50 years. He showed a remarkable propensity to publicize and market his new ventures, and despite his time in jail, the law was barely able to bring him the justice he deserved. At a time when the idea of con artists was still a new one, George Graham Rice was a pioneer of his era and his crimes. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on George Graham Rice, amongst the many sources we used, we found My Adventures With Your Money by T.D. Thornton extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>